We're starting a, a new series that I'm very excited about. It would be awful if I got up here and said, I'm not that excited about a series, but I am excited about this one. And it simply poses the question, how can I live a meaningful life? And in the first instance, I guess I'm speaking first and foremost to those who've already accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, because it's coming from a perspective of someone who's following Jesus. But if you haven't made that decision yet, don't, don't, don't drop out, don't turn off, because I believe God will speak to you and, and you can weigh it up and go, yeah, do I want to be a part of it? And maybe it'll bring you that much closer to accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. The subtitle to this message is intentionally a little bit provocative. Can I love Jesus but not love the church? Can I love Jesus but not love the church? In our non-committal age, we like to keep our options open. And it's been coming almost a hallmark of this generation, and I include all of us, of keeping our options open. Multiple choice on every single thing from supermarkets to church life to everything else in between. And I believe that one of the most countercultural things you can do as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a faithful, fully engaged member of a healthy Bible-based church. Now, I kind of know I'm speaking to the choir, both here and online, because you're here, you've joined in. But I just want to reaffirm some things in this regard today. Embracing Jesus and committing to His church with all its imperfections, If you think you found the perfect church, please don't attend, you'll mess it up. (laughs) The church with all its imperfections and at times with some significant failures, but as you come into Jesus and embrace it, it will actually help you grow and mature as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will demonstrate an aspect of authenticity in your followership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, speaking about marriage, but he's drawing on a whole lot of things to speak about the church as well. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved and continues to love the church and gave himself up for her. I'd say based on that verse alone, it's almost impossible to say, I really fully love Jesus, but I'm not going to engage with his church, his bride. Jesus was despised for eating with sinners. We are those sinners, aren't we? Those broken people that come together and are washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and brought into a life-giving relationship and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are still those imperfect sinners that Jesus says, I love you and I'm going to speak into your life and transform you. And the bride of Christ, the church, will become radiant and perfect in the eternal age. We don't make the church attractive Now, I'm not saying your behaviour should make the church unattractive, but we are not the ones that make the church attractive. It's the cross of Christ and the extravagant love of Jesus that's poured out on us that actually makes the church attractive. 
One of the things that we see going on, it's been going on for a long time, it's not a brand new thing, but it seems to have gone to another level, is everything in our Western society in particular, diminishing the significance of the church, pushing it to a side, even to the point where it's all right to have private belief, but just don't outlive your faith. Don't talk to others about it. Don't have an opinion that is contrary to some new fashionable trend. That's been going on for a while. This whole effort of our Western society to push the church to the side is almost irrelevant of those people who just, you know, need a crutch kind of attitude. But that's not God's view of the church. That's not God's view of us. In Ephesians chapter one, and I love the way Eugene Peterson renders it in the message translation or paraphrase. He says, the church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which He speaks and acts and by which He fills everything with His presence. Whether you're fully aware of it or not, not just in this gathered thing, when I speak about the church, I'm not just talking about the church gathered, which is important and it's a wonderful thing to do. I'm talking about the church being the church in the every day of every week and every moment of that week. And he says, God says, I have put the church at the very centre of my purposes for humanity. And if you read Paul in Ephesians, for the cosmos, and we're not going to go there right now. But God says, no, I'm not pushing the church to the side. I am, have put the church at the very centre of everything that I want to do and accomplish on this planet. And so we should kind of, you know, to stand tall and say, yeah, I'm a part of the church, even though we feel some of the belittling and the other things that goes on in a, particularly our Western society and in some others where the church is extraordinarily persecuted. You see, we are called to belong. God has put that within us. And whether we call a church membership or partnership or anything else, it's actually about the commitment. And as you read the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul and others and Jesus himself kind of assumes that there's going to be a commitment to belong to a local church as a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost and they said, what must we do to be saved? And and Peter declared, repent, be baptised by full immersion in water, I'm explaining, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. The very next few verses says, and all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The word cornonia, it's this intimate fellowship, this point of connection and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. I mean, I notice they just as a spontaneous thing in the birthing of the they devoted themselves. The word church is used about 114 times in the New Testament. It's the word ecclesia. And it doesn't refer to a building, but to a people who are called out to be on mission. And, and it, it's got some, it's roots back in Greek, the ecclesia, those who are called into the marketplace, gathered for a purpose, for in, something intentional. And the called out ones, you you look in the New Testament, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers. That's why we still continue as the church, mostly on a, a Sunday. We gather the first day of the week. We gather to be with each other, to connect, to have fellowship and to 
have teaching and to worship corporately. We're still the church when we scattered, but that moment as we gather like we are this morning, whether here in the auditorium or in our online campus. And it's because God's idea is community and not individualism. And I think the balance of that has gone so far in our society, pushing everything towards the individual. And God honours the individual. We can go into that some other time. God has always been a God who says every single person is important, but it's gone so far that community is almost despised or the values or the significance of community. In a way, the story of the Bible is that of God shaping and refining His people to live in community. And you can see it with the great Exodus coming out through the wilderness experiences, God trying to shape this community that honours Him, that worships Him, that values each other. But it's in community. The lives of people like Abram, David, Isaiah, the disciples, Paul himself, lose some of their meaning outside of their commitment to community. And this is what God says about us. It's not an individual thing. The the, the Scripture says to us individually, Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But balancing that, and it's quoted in the Old Testament a number of times in the New. I'm just looking at 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16. God says, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That whole sense of God, as we gather His presence, Jesus is seen walking amongst the seven candlesticks representing the seven churches of Asia Minor at the time. He has a thought. The New Testament is predominantly written to churches, not individuals. If you take the Gospels aside that tell the story of Jesus, very, very important. I'm not diminishing the significance of the Gospels, but even the Gospels tell of Jesus taking disciples and being in kind of community with them, the 12 that walked with Him and followed Him and witnessed the miracles and all the rest of it. And there is a letter written to Philemon and one or two others, but the vast majority of the New Testament is written to the church, not just to individuals. And listen to this. This is Paul's opening greeting to the church. I'm just picking one example here. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, theirs and ours. And I would suggest to you that you cannot fully understand the New Testament if you're not involved in a local church. Now, I'm not saying you can't understand anything, but it's in their interaction of reading the challenges, the good, the bad, the ugly that Paul addresses and other of the apostolic writers of people gathered in community, problems and all the rest of it, they make more sense when you're actually experiencing some of that yourself. And this is not to justify bad behaviour in the church, but a lot of them were written to fix things that weren't going that well in the church. Gone very quiet in here. And if you only read the Bible privately, you will privatise the message and miss something that God is wanting to say to you. So I want to answer the question, why commit to a local church? When you say, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, 
You become a part of what is called the universal church. And what they mean by that, the church everywhere, down through time, all people across the planet and anybody who's ever belonged to the church down through history or will. It's the universal church. And the writer of Hebrews describes a little bit of it. And it's a magnificent description. You have thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's a description of the universal church. And it's magnificent that we're not just a group of people gathered here in Canberra or in online campus. We're actually part of the eternal, or well, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, birthed and will be with Him for the rest of eternity. We're part of an assembly of people down through the ages who've loved and served Jesus. So many of them martyred and other things, and those will come. We're part of the universal church, but it doesn't stop there. We outlive our faith connected to a local church. And I heard somebody say some years ago, and I say this tongue in cheek, you know, some people who claim to be part of the universal church and don't need to come to a local church until they get into trouble. And I heard somebody say, well, go and find the pastor of the universal church and let him come and visit you in hospital or her come and visit you in hospital. And it's a little bit cheeky, a little bit, in your face, but it's trying to illustrate the point. Yes, we're part of this extraordinary thing, the universal church, the church down through time, down through the ages, but we also need to be connected to the local. And in the same book, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing now. And we've gone through a season because of COVID where we've been encouraged not to gather. In fact, forbidden to gather sometimes. And I get it. I'm not railing against that. And I think some have just got into a habit of not gathering. And I know there's people on our online campus today, you isolating, you have a family member that you have to isolate, you're travelling or something. You're welcome. I'm not having a crack at you. I'm just saying we should not forsake gathering when we are well enough to gather, have an opportunity to gather, and there's a local church down the road where you can gather. Dane, your silence scares me. <laughs> Firstly, we need Christ-centred fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is kononia, and it's more than just talking about the weather or the state of origin match coming up tonight, for which New South Wales needs desperate prayer against the forces of evil. (laughs) Oh dear, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) But church life or the Christian life is not designed to be lived in isolation. And those who try it that way are likely to crash. You're missing out on something. And fellowship isn't always easy. As I've said, a lot of the New Testament is written to correct bad behaviour in local churches and redirect it. So we're not claiming perfection here, 
but we aspire to something, to be a community of faith that honours Jesus, that loves people, that engages, that walks alongside people. Fellowship, like I said, comes from the Greek word kononia, which means to share in common. And in John, 1 John chapter 3, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3 to 4, John says this, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you can have fellowship with us. And he's just bragging about Jesus. We actually, he says, got to walk with him and talk to him and we could touch him. And he says, it was extremely, but he said, we're telling you about Jesus so that we can actually have fellowship together. And our fellowship then is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make your joy complete. The phrase one another occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament. 59 of those occurrences are specific commands, instructions, teaching us how to behave or how not to behave and relate to one another. 50 occasions where we encourage to do things one to another or not to do something if it's bad behaviour. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. I'm not going to go all through 59. I'm just picking one. Who said amen to that? Amen. All right, there you go. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So we need Christ-centred fellowship. We need to learn from each other. I need to hear about your story, your experience, your struggle, how Jesus taught you to overcome, how the Holy Spirit led you and prompted you. There's something in that that is so powerful. And yes, we base our behaviour and our inspiration first and foremost on God's Word and His promises and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But it's enriched by people saying, this is how I Walk that out. This is how this changed my life. This is how I got through this. Or can I come alongside you and just pray with you and bring you a meal or or whatever the case may be in a situation? We choose our friends because they have common ideals, ideas and interests. But when you come to the church, it's so diverse. And let's be honest, I'm speaking for some of us in terms of normal society wouldn't hang out with each other. Not because there's anything wrong with you. It's just you're not in that group. You're not in that part of the society. You, You wouldn't come across each other. But when we gather here, and I just love the diversity that there is in this church, both in ages and in ethnic background. It's an incredible thing. And it it just does something to my heart to see that interaction, that connection, that caring, that inclusion. Philippians 4 verse 9 says, and Paul speaking to the church at Philippi, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And so he's saying you learn not just about what I said, but about what you saw me do and outlive and the way Paul followed Jesus. And we learn that way. We catch something. We don't always just hear things. We hear them, but we catch them by watching how other people behave. In Titus chapter 2, 
He go, Paul goes through a whole lot of instructions and he's speaking to Titus, the pastor of a local church, about how the younger people should behave, the older people, the mothers, the fathers, the sons, the daughters, the younger, the older. He goes through these instructions. And he says, so that in every way, we may make the teaching of our God and Saviour attractive. And there's something about that whole interaction of community across ages and and background and, and gender, that when we come together and learn from each other and glean things, and some of it's even subconscious, we don't actually know, but something the way they said that, that did that. And he says, when you do that, you actually make theology, doctrine, teaching, when you begin to live it out, attractive. So we need Christ-centered fellowship. We need to learn from each other. We grow up in Christ together. Paul in Ephesians chapter four, and I encourage you, can I give you homework? I'm not gonna check up. A lot's the Holy Spirit to check up. But Ephesians chapter four, where Paul has spent the first three chapters talking about the sheer magnificence of salvation by grace, the power of the cross, the power of what Jesus has done and accomplished for it and how it positions us. And then he begins to get really practical about a whole lot of behavioural things after that. And he drops into the whole functioning of the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter four. And I encourage you, read it a few times and even read it in a few different translations and just hear some of the things that he's saying. And as you do say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. How do I engage with this as the body of Christ? So that's the context. And he talks about this interaction and the growing together. And Ephesians 4 verse 15, he says, then we will no longer be immature like like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with the lies they so cleverly, that sound like the truth. I actually missed a verse, I'm gonna go back to it. Ephesians 4.13, this will continue until we come to such unity of the faith. He's talking about the learning from each other. This will continue until we come to such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son, and we will be maturing the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. One of the things we do to help all of us grow and keep maturing and growing up in Christ is run different courses and the opportunities to discover things, whether strengthening your marriage or relationship stuff or managing your finances. But one of the ones that I think is incredible is Alpha. And whether you're still searching, you've got questions about faith, I'd encourage you, we're going to run an Alpha course soon, get along to it. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, but you're not quite sure about some key teachings or doctrines, go along to an Alpha Church course. If you know somebody and you think you know everything, take that person and take them with you. I want us to look at this clip right now on the Alpha course coming up. Every day we ask so many questions. What should I wear? What's the weather going to be like? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are those bigger questions, like why am I here? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? 
I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. At 28, uh, I had gotten many of the things that I thought I wanted. My girlfriend was on the cover of magazines, I had a Beamer, and I was so unhappy. It was a realization maybe that I would would never find happiness where I was looking for it. I think for so many years, you know, I always just strived to be strong in myself. All I needed was me and my buddies and, you know, would be like invincible. But the truth is, none of us are. And I found purpose, I found meaning, I found hope. God took something so broken and made it a beautiful art piece. Alpha is a place where you can be yourself. You can say what you think and challenge everything. No question is too complex or too simple. And what your point of view is, is as important as anyone else's. We are going on a journey together, an adventure to explore the questions of life, faith, and meaning. So if you want to connect to the Alpha course, you can talk to Pastor Danielle or any other team. You can go on the website or the app and you can see how to get there. But it really is something that will just ground you and inspire you. And like I said, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you've got questions, one of the best things you can do is go to an Alpha course. Because you see, Paul in Ephesians 4 sees Spiritual maturity, not just in terms of how much you know about Jesus, that's an aspect of it, but how much stability following Jesus in community comes to your life. That you are no longer immature like children and you won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, faddish things. And you'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. But Paul also sees spiritual maturity as kingdom activity. Listen to this in Ephesians 4.16. Indeed, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ. That's one of the greatest goals that God has for your life and my life is we become more like Jesus. Become more like Christ, who is the head of His body. Notice this is not private faith. This is connected. Yeah, you need a personal relationship with Jesus, but connected to the body of Christ, who is the head of His body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I love that statement. So that the whole body, when we engage this way, the whole body becomes healthy, growing and full of love. 
The final thing, and I could have listed a lot more, but be thankful I didn't, that we are called to serve one another in community. This thing called the church. And solo Christianity has become attractive, I guess, for some people. But it evades the fundamental thing of actually being a follower of Jesus Christ, engaged with the local church, with all the ups and downs, the good and the bad things that can happen there. But the sense of belonging, not just to Jesus, but to each other. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 4 to 6, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I want you to notice again, Paul's writing to the church at Rome. And while he acknowledges individual believers, he's speaking to them as a community of faith. And he says, you bring something. Yeah, God recognises your individuality, but it's individuality that's meant to be connected to community. And when you come into that, he says, you need to look at what gifts, what differences, what unique experiences you've had and see how that fits and connects to the body of Christ so you can serve one another, so you can use those gifts. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter 14. Peter's a bit more succinct. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in all its various forms. Can I suggest to you that the preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power. Although God's kingdom by its very essence, its very nature and by the very nature of God is powerful. It's not even freedom, even though God wants you and I to be set free. The fundamental and preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is servanthood. It's to serve others, not, not just within the church, but within our other communities, to be a people of a heart to serve others in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, ironically, says that greatness is not given in His kingdom to the people being served, but the people who serve. And He's talking about how the Gentiles lorded over people. And this is in the context of two disciples wanting to be given a place at his left and right hand when he comes to his kingdom. They wanted the power. They were drawn to that. And he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that whole passage is extraordinary. But that last statement, Mark 10, 45, should take our breath away. And perhaps some of us have become 
a little bit too familiar with it. And maybe whether here in the auditorium or on an online campus, you're hearing it for the first time or didn't fully recognise it. You may have read it before, but it didn't sink in. Jesus calls us to serve. And then he holds himself up as an example. Jesus, fully God, fully human, walking amongst us. He said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to collect my fingers and have disciples running around like other religious leaders of the time would have done. It was all about prestige and status and that. He said, I didn't come for that. He said, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Here's the question, what did you come for? And all of us are on journey. Some of you may be still trying to work out Christianity, following Jesus. Some of you may be really new on the journey and there's joy and discovery and all the rest of us. Some of us may have been around for a while. I hold myself up as an example. Maybe we've got a few bad attitudes that have crept in. Maybe because we were disappointed. Somebody let us down within the church. Maybe the church at large, wherever it was, let you down somehow. And little things have just crept into your heart. And I wonder if you would just kind of bring those to Jesus this morning. Because husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. He loves the church and He calls us to love the church. Not not to paper over imperfections and where we get it wrong. We face that, we get honest and real. But to just love what He loves, the Bride of Christ, because it's that love that is so transformational. It's that love that brings such beauty. That willingness to serve one another as we seek to serve Jesus that makes the church beautiful. He came and He gave His life as a ransom for many. What it's saying is that you and I were captured by sin and because of that, alienated from God. But Jesus came as Saviour, yes, and as Lord to break that. And that's what His death was all about on the cross, His suffering leading up to it. And the power of His resurrection declares that God accepted the sacrifice so that all our sins could be forgiven. If Jesus hadn't risen, our sins wouldn't be forgiven. The sacrifice was not enough. The fact that He's the risen Saviour declares that full payment for all our sin and brokenness was accepted by the Father. We can be forgiven. We are accepted. We can be set free. Grace is now what God extends to us. But it all comes in accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour.